Our scripture reading tonight comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. You can find this passage on page 900 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's Word and would like to follow along there, I also want to tell you, if you need a copy of God's Word, please take one of those Pew Bibles as a gift uh, from us. We would love for you to take that with you and to read it uh, daily on a regular basis. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an incredible example the Lord Jesus is to us in humility and in service and in love for the brothers and sisters. And so, God, we pray that as we go to your word tonight, that you would speak to us the message of the gospel, the message of hope, and the message of peace. May your spirit reign freely in the hearts of all in this room, and may we glorify you in thanksgiving for what you do and how you transform us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Tonight, before we come to the table, I want us to look at what it means to enjoy the presence of Christ at his table, to hopefully eradicate and tear down what might be some barriers to a peaceful heart, and barriers to fully enjoying the presence of Christ tonight. Universally, I think almost in every culture, sitting down for a meal together with family and friends is a mark of hospitality and and friendship. It's something that every culture does on some level. The food, the context, the circumstances, the occasions for which the meal might be served are different across cultures, different holidays, different gatherings. But two things remain the same, food and fellowship. They are universal. Who doesn't like being invited to a dinner party? Well, 
maybe some of the extreme introverts among us, right? But I think we all enjoy these special moments because they combine two of our greatest needs. We need food to survive, to nourish our bodies. If you walk into a Chick-fil-A, you might see Truett Cathy's quote that says, food is essential to life, therefore make it good. We all enjoy a good meal. And sure, we could probably survive with protein bars or K-rations as they have to in wartime. But who would pass up a five-course gourmet meal and join an evening of fellowship with one another? What a blessing that can be. Additionally, our souls need relationship. They need fellowship. The Creator wired us this way. He put these, both these things in us, the physical need for food and the spiritual desire for fellowship and companionship. And then he filled a world with all kinds of wonderful foods for us to enjoy and to bless us in that way, to satisfy our hunger. And he also filled the world with wonderful people, both friends and family, people who are different than us, people that are similar to us, to enjoy companionship and fellowship with. And of course, both of these needs are ultimately fulfilled in the Creator himself. So it should come as no surprise to us that the Lord chose a meal to be the ongoing regular sacrament of his church. Baptism, of course, is a one-time sacrament for a believer. It marks our justification, our being made right with God, our moment of salvation when Christ saves us and we are perfectly clothed in his righteousness. And we're only baptized once. But the Lord's table reminds us of our continuing need to grow in grace, our sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, and we need this reminder continually until the Lord returns. And so we have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table frequently, to partake and to be spiritually nourished and strengthened. I fear that in our culture, the regular family meal has lost its specialness with many grabbing a plate of food and plopping down in separate rooms in the house in front of their favorite electronic device, whether it's a TV or a telephone. It's a shame, isn't it? We miss the opportunity to connect with one another, to ask one another how their day was, to ask the important questions of life, to love and invest in one another and those opportunities. Is it possible that similarly we can tend to lose the significance of the meal we come to share as a family, even here tonight? Missing the opportunity for fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with one another, going through the ritual without recognizing that Jesus is actually spiritually here with us in the meal. We create barriers of sin, fear, and hardness of heart and miss out on what Jesus desires to do for us at his table. Of course, there are too many of us to come forward and to gather around this small table for our meal tonight. But that's the sense of it. That's how we should view this. A supper, a meal that we share with Jesus as our host, brothers and sisters, side by side, feasting upon him and enjoying his presence 
with us. So as we come to the Lord's table on this Maundy Thursday, the night that our Lord was betrayed, let's reflect on what took place in the upper room when the supper was instituted. Jesus had entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his followers the previous Sunday, which we acknowledged and celebrated this past Lord's Day, even here in our worship. The crowds had declared him their king and messiah as he fulfilled the prophecy of entering that lowly donkey as a king of peace, as Bob reminded us on Sunday. And now Thursday had come, the day for the Passover meal, and his disciples secured an upper room along with all of the accoutrements and all of the food that they would need to feast and to fellowship and to make the evening a special evening together. In the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only get a little description of the upper room that night. Just a few verses to know what took place and what happened. But in John, John gives us a glimpse of the intimacy of Jesus and his disciples. Five chapters dedicated to conversation, to the questions, to the fears that the disciples had in asking the Lord Jesus, being open with him and vulnerable with him, and Jesus ministering back to them. Jesus addressing their deepest fears, dispensing his grace to them and strengthening them for the incredibly difficult journey that lay ahead. And that same grace, that very same grace is available to Jesus' followers today. For the promise from Jesus is that he is spiritually really present here, now to satisfy your deepest desires and to assure you of his everlasting love. You need not look back to the upper room as a distant memory of Jesus' grace or even to only look ahead to the future glory and hope of the marriage supper of the Lamb and our consummation. But you can enjoy dining with Jesus with his spiritual presence here at his table with confidence, you can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace in your time of need. So come away for a while from the cares of the world. Step out of where you've just come from. Leave it behind. Accept Jesus' invitation to supper. He is here ready to speak to you through his living word and to feed you with this grace-filled meal. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we examine the questions that the disciples had that night during the supper, perhaps you will hear your own heart resonating with these questions. And as Jesus spoke comfort in his answers to them, so too he speaks to us tonight and invites us to dine with him and to be at rest. The first question, not surprisingly, out of the mouth of loud Peter, in verse 6 of chapter 13, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Some of us can't imagine a God who would stoop like Jesus stooped, can we? We want a strong man God, not a gentle, lowly Savior who humbles himself to the death of a cross. Peter questioned what Jesus was offering him. No, Jesus, you can't wash my dirty feet. You're, you're far too holy. You're far too pure. You're too righteous to deal with my filth. Let me clean myself up first, and then I'll come. Jesus gave Peter a pretty strong rebuttal. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So what are the barriers to accepting Jesus washing away the guilt of our shame and our sins? Do we keep making the same mistakes over and over again, maybe? Perhaps we don't really believe he could love us that much, that he's going to really cleanse us one more time. Here I am again, confessing the same sin. But Jesus says that we must let him wash us, or we have no part with him. The only way out of guilt and shame is to let the sinless one take your sin upon himself and to give you instead, as Bob even prayed earlier, his robe of righteousness. John writes in his first epistle, which we've just studied, those wonderful words of assurance that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, next up with the questions is John. The room was abuzz with Jesus' pronouncement that there was a traitor among them. They were all trying to figure out who it was. And finally, Peter motions to John with a you-ask-him gesture. John, referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, was already reclining at supper near Jesus. And he leans back further with his head upon the breast of Christ, and he says, Lord, who is it? Fear, suspicion, Anger must have filled the room. How could this be? They had spent three years living together in close quarters, living hand to mouth, living on the streets, being totally vulnerable and open with one another, following their long-awaited Messiah and learning at his feet. And now Jesus tells them, that there's a traitor in their midst. Is there anything more painful than the betrayal of friends and family? Jesus identifies Judas quietly, not so that all of them hear. And Judas quietly leaves the upper room to carry out his betrayal. And on the heels of that exit, look at what he says to the others. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Are you struggling to love someone because of a past hurt? Is there a broken relationship that is creating a barrier to your being at peace with Jesus and at peace with his people? Jesus gives us the remedy, and he is here at his table to give you the grace of love for those who have hurt you. 
Come to him and ask him for the ability to love like he loves. This table is a table of communion with Jesus and with his children. We cannot rightly come unless we have love in our hearts for each other. Well, Peter can't help himself and he speaks up again. In verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered in a rebuke, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You ever wonder why Jesus left his disciples? Or why he has left you on this earth for so long? Wouldn't it be better once we're saved to go be with him? Peter thought so. After all, Peter knew what was best for himself, right? As we do. But Peter was about to learn his hardest life lesson in just a few hours. The braggart of the bunch wouldn't even last 24 hours without denying the one he swore his very life to protect. Are we really so arrogant that we think we are ready for God's kingdom? That God couldn't possibly have more for us in this life? More growth through sharing in the sufferings of Christ? More usefulness in the kingdom? More of Jesus to know before going to heaven with him? But we want to bypass all of that, don't we? We want what we want, and we want it now. And if we're honest, we probably think Jesus owes it to us, too. Oh, what a fall awaited Peter. And how we fall again and again and again. But just like with Peter and the others, Jesus meets us where we are, not in condemnation, but with grace. He didn't say, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. Cursed be you. Curses be upon your head. And you know what? No, there, you can't follow me because there's not going to be a place in my kingdom for betrayers, for deniers. But no, Jesus didn't say that. Listen to the words that came out of Jesus' mouth right after he pronounced that Peter was going to deny him. He says to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wasn't abandoning them as they feared. He was going to make preparations for their arrival in his kingdom. He was coming back for them at just the right time. Sometimes I doubt the Lord's wisdom in leaving me here to struggle with sin and suffering. Do you feel abandoned by him even tonight? Well, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. And know this, I'm preparing something for you beyond your wildest dreams. And at just the perfect moment, I'm going to take you there with me.
But in the meantime, come, feed on my word, dine at my table, and take courage. Well, next up in our our lineup is Doubting Thomas. We see his question in chapter 14, verse 5, where Jesus is continuing talking about the preparations he's going to make. And he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas was afraid of getting lost, trying to find his way to Jesus once he left. Are you afraid of being lost? Do you fear not being able to find your way back to Jesus? Are you afraid to die, not knowing what the journey looks like on the other side, or even if you'll find him over there? Jesus assured Thomas that it wasn't about discovering a path to where Jesus was going. It wasn't by gaining an understanding about the kingdom that Thomas would find his way. There wasn't a special set of directions that he needed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas, you can't be lost because you are my friend. I know you, I've chosen you, and you know me. I freely lay down my life for you. Finding and following Jesus is not merely an intellectual pursuit. It is a relationship with a person. A relationship bought by his own precious blood shed upon the cross. Yeah, but can I really have a relationship with Jesus like the disciples had? I mean, he was really present with them. Yes, you can. For his spirit is really present with you. Now and always, if you know him as Savior. If you are his, you cannot be lost. And not only do you know the way to Jesus, you have the way because you have him. And he will never leave you. Or forsake you. Philip actually makes a statement instead of a question in verse 8, but I think it still reveals his own doubt and uncertainty in the questions of his heart. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip thought he needed more than what he had in Jesus. He wanted something more to assure him of his faith. He wanted to see the Father. Jesus gently rebukes him. How about us? Do we believe that Jesus is enough? Or are we looking for something more to give us peace in this world. We say he's enough, but what do our actions say about that? 
What keeps, keeps us up at night? Where do our thoughts and actions race to when we feel threatened or out of control? Jesus reminds us that he is the source of everything we need. He alone can answer our every prayer. He is the perfect revelation of the Father to us. There is nothing more for us beyond him. But his answer to Philip gets even better. For he says that he's going to ask the Father to send us a helper. To be with us forever. One who will reveal through his word what truth is. And this one will dwell inside of each of us. Oh, child of God, do you understand the magnitude of this gift? What benefits are ours in Christ Jesus? As Jesus continues talking, his words spark another final follow-up question from the other Judas referred to elsewhere in, this, in the New Testament as Thaddeus, most believe. In verse 22, we read that Judas, and in parentheses, to make it clear, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus reiterates his earlier response to Philip and unpacks it a bit more. Judas, the Father and I are going to make our home with you. The helper that is coming is coming in my name. He's the real deal. He's going to teach you far more than I have taught you to this point. And I am leaving you a supernatural peace that the world cannot comprehend for you to enjoy now and forever. What grace we see in our Savior responding to his followers here. What grace we see as he responds to us in his words in the upper room. Things really haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? Which disciple do you resonate with? The guilt and shame of Peter? The suspicion of betrayal expressed by John? The fear of abandonment? The Peter feeling of being lost like Thomas, Philip's doubt and uncertainty or Judas' unbelief. We have the same questions, the same fears, the same doubts and struggles, the same struggle with sin that the disciples had that night. So as you dine with Jesus, expect him to satisfy your deepest desires and to assure you of his everlasting love. Bring your hard questions. He can handle it. He's here. 
And he's ready to minister his grace to you in your time of need. And his words, they are no less powerful than they were that first Maundy Thursday. For they are accompanied by his living spirit who dwells within you. Jesus' final statement to his disciples before heading out and the events of the Garden of Gethsemane was this. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, we are here tonight to celebrate and to join in feasting upon our Savior. And if you're a communing member of a faithful gospel-preaching church, then you're welcome to join the brothers and sisters here at St. Andrew's at the Lord's table. Remember that Jesus is here with us spiritually. It is his table, just as it was in the upper room. But... If you are in a Judas-like state, either not in relationship with Jesus or living in open rebellion to him and not willing to turn from your sin, don't make a mockery of this table by disrespecting the Son. This is a sacred meal. It must be revered and honored. But if you are in need of spiritual nourishing, and strengthening, if you are weak and heavy laden, if you are looking for peace, satisfaction, and help to conquer your sin and live in new obedience, then come and be fed. Listen to these wonderful words from our confession that tell us what we should be doing during this time around the table. We should wait upon God We should observe the elements and the actions that are taking place. We should discern the Lord's body and meditate on his death and sufferings. And in doing those things, we should then be stirred up in our hearts. Stirred up to evaluate our spiritual state and to sorrow over our sin. But not only that, we should be stirred up to earnestly hunger and thirst after Christ feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace. And in all of that, renewing our covenant with God and renewing our love for all the saints. When Jesus hung on the cross for you and for me, he cried out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so we would never have to be. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in this. Give thanks for this. Respond to this. As Isaac Watts tells us in our closing hymn, that if we owned the whole world and everything in it, that would be a present far too small for him. That kind of an amazing love demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. O 
Oh, Father, thank you for your gracious invitation to us, to your table. Thank you for Christ, for his salvation, for our position in him. Thank you that we can come and dine in love. Thank you, Lord, that this table brings grace and healing to our hearts, even as we exercise in faith and look to you for your grace as we feed upon your word and as we enjoy the sacrament tonight together. So, Father, would you be pleased to transform us this evening, to make us look more like our brother Jesus, so that we might serve him faithfully and that we might be your disciples, a light in the darkness and salt staving off corruption. Help us in this, we ask. And meet us at your table tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.